With issues like healthcare rights and election integrity on the line this November, there's reason to be concerned about the future of the U.S. The good news, you can help. With no more than six hours a week, you can volunteer with Tech for Campaigns and use your design skills to help swing district Democrats win local elections. State and local races often come down to only a few hundred votes. Having a strong digital presence and reaching new voters through digital ads and email campaigns can be what makes the difference. Democracy needs you. Volunteer at techforcampaigns.org forward slash volunteer. This is Sarah Tebow, and I am the host of the SideWoo podcast. Join me for conversations about mental health and metaphysical issues from the lens of living a more creative, fulfilling, and connected life. From the physical to the metaphysical and beyond, welcome to the SideWoo. Welcome, SideWooers. This is the latest from the SideWoo, and I'm back in sunny California recording from L.A., Happy to be here in the U.S., I guess. I mean, maybe not the U.S., but I'm actually very happy to be back in California for all of its issues. You know, it's got some bits and pieces going on. So anyway, this week I bring you an interview with Judd Bergeron. He's an artist, co-founder of the Space Program Residency, avid deadhead, and all-around nice guy. Judd works primarily in bronze, but is a real jack-of-all-trades and is integral to helping artists realize their projects at the residency. And, you know, listening back, I realized we covered so much ground, but I, I think one of the through lines is this idea of personal freedom, how to experience it for yourself, but also how to offer space for others to experience it for themselves. And we talk about, you know, the countless concerts he went to as a deadhead following them on tour, both in the 80s and 90s and now today. We talk about his experience with psychedelics, getting sober, and what it's like running a residency from behind the scenes, among other things. If you do want to check out Judd's work right now, he has some art in a show that's the 20th anniversary of Gallery Poulsen in Copenhagen. So I will have links in the show notes as well as in the Substack that I send out probably next week. It's going to be, it's, it's a wild ride. Strap in. There's a lot of ground to cover. If you have any thoughts or feedback about this episode, as always, please do not hesitate to reach out. You can email at thesidewoo at gmail.com. If you enjoy the episode, feel free to subscribe, rate, review, and share the side woo with your woo-woo friends on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram for updates at the side woo. And, you know, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the episode. talking about our shared French-Canadian ancestry, and you said that they were all perverts. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly the one, the New England ones are, for sure. Okay. I don't, know, I don't know about the rest of them, but yeah, I mean, I've always, it's not not anything that I've ever been super proud of. My brother and I, every time someone's like, oh, is, is that French? And we're like, well. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I'm always like, French Canada, and then or French Canadian. But like in Minnesota, that's pretty common. That's true. Well, with that, welcome, Judd Bergeron. I wanted to start with our normal question, which is what sign are you? I'm Pisces. Oh, really? 
really? Oh, that explains your psychic slash interest in mind expansion, I feel like. Could be. Yeah, could be. You know, my daughter's also Pisces and her and I have, we share similar sort of traits in that we can, we can feel situations differently than other people, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. My whole family, except for me, is a Pisces. And it was just like psychic bombs being passed around, you know, like everyone wasn't talking, but we all knew what we were thinking. Do you feel like that makes you less likely to communicate something because you feel like you already know? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know about that. I mean, I feel like the sensitivity attached to potentially being a Pisces is oftentimes a burden. That coupled with, you know, with a heavy dose of narcissism can really cripple you sometimes. That's not what you're dealing with, is it, though? Well, you know, I mean, I think we're all narcissists to some degree, Sure. you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that sometimes the sensitivity is it's like a sort of deep sadness that can be can be crippling, you know. Yeah. Yeah. we, We talked about that with this witch who wrote this book. She's super Pisces and she wrote a book called Witch Ethics which is all about when you are super sensitive, what the ethics of reading other people's energy is, and also for yourself, how to protect yourself and your energy. And I just thought it was so interesting because I never heard anyone articulate it in that way. You know, it's like that it is this thing to contend with instead of it just being like, I'm an empath. Let me go hide. Right. I can do all this. Like, why wouldn't I always do it? You know, instead of consciously trying to turn it off at times, which I don't think any of us are being taught how to do. No, no, it's true. And I feel like, you know, for a large part of my life, I drank a lot to sort of hide, to dull this down a little bit. But I was telling my daughter like not too long ago, just about, you know, following your intuition and always follow your gut. And I was telling her that there's been like two times in my life, both times I was drinking, both times at a bar, where I was all of a sudden confronted with someone who I didn't know. And then immediately was like, oh, this person means to really harm me. Oh, wow. And like, I could tell, not because they were being overt about oh, wow. it, but I was like, oh, this like this could go really really wrong like they were picking a fight with you or something not even picking a fight like this person is potentially a serial killer like oh wow that's you know wait can you tell that story i mean i was like hammered you know in a conversation with this guy and then all of a sudden i just had this realization of like oh this guy means to harm me you know and then like sort of retreating and getting out of the conversation and then seeing the sort of desperation on his face to continue it going and i was like oh i gotta get the fuck out of here you know yeah that's a really good sign yeah oh my god that's so scary so scary but i feel like people that don't have that sort of strong gut yeah like you had a guide come in and be like Ding, 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 wake (laughs) up. Like, as drunk as you are, like, you need to hear this. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. They happened twice, but the one time that I really remember, the guy was, like, super charming. Okay, I have a story after this. And I was like, oh, that's, like, this is really weird. What's your story? Well, it's not my story, but I feel, like, comfortable in telling it. It's basically that story, only the guy ended up going home with him. Just to back up, he was a customer at Chameleon Cafe where I worked after grad school. And he would like come across the street and be like shoeless and super cute with little braids and grew weed at his house. But so he's like, oh, this this happened where I went to the bar. I met this guy. He was so charming. I went back to his place 
And he's like, you know, we had to walk past a garage or some kind of door that was kind of off the house. It wasn't the main house. And then you know how they have those like alleyways to get to the back house. And so then he went to the house and he's remember thinking like, oh, I'm really glad I don't have to go there. I'm glad that's not the destination, you know. And he went to this guy's house. The guy like made them drinks or like beer. And, Always a red flag. Well, you know, and then he was like sitting on the couch while the guy was doing this. And then the guy sat down, put beers on the table and then was looking at something else. And then he ended up grabbing the one closest to the guy just kind of subconsciously. But to me, I think it was something similar where there was like this instinct to not grab the one closest to him. And then the guy grabbed the other drink and they were just sitting on the couch. And he's like, I remember the guy, his personality had shifted once they got to his house. Like that charm went away and he was really straightforward and monotone. And then all of a sudden they're sitting on the couch and his head falls back. This this guy who had invited him over just fell back and he like was out. Whoa. And then the guy's like, okay, well, I guess he had too much to drink and then just left. And then later in the news, he found out this guy was a serial killer, like luring men back to his house and had all these guys in the basement where where they had walked by that like area. Holy shit. I know. What year was this? I don't even remember. It was like the 70s or. Oh, God. Dude, that's so crazy. I remember my friend Steen, who's like one of my best friends, he was working at the Owl Bar Mm. for a long time. You remember the Owl Bar? I remember hearing about it, yeah. And there was this like older guy that that used to come in all the time. And at one point, he noticed that this guy was like putting things around the bar. And he realized that this guy was like putting like little packets that he could like slip mickeys into people's drinks oh what the fuck yeah no and yeah. he did he report him or something i think he he like yeah kicked him out and the guy never came back but i remember one time at 111 minute this actually was a collector's son of mine who's now dead he got shot it was it ended up in jail but got shot but he like roofied me at this what the fuck yeah and for no reason other than just to fuck with me wow you know because we were at the time we were living in New York City, and I had come back for yeah. a show, and the after party was at Minna. Yeah, and he was there, and then I left, and all of a sudden I could like I was like holding on to street signs, like trying oh to God. stay up upright, and he was the only person. Well, you're luckily you're a bigger guy, like yeah, you're yeah, gonna topple over right away. Exactly. But... Well, and I could you know back when I drank, I could really handle it, okay. you know, and I was like, this is not that. Like something else is going crazy. That's interesting. I went to Madison, which is a known party school, and people would take now looking back, they are probably pretty sad and something was going on. But like, you know, Halloween was a big thing. And I went out with this group and one or two of the guys took roofies. She's fun. Yeah, for fun. And I'm like, and then they obviously blacked out and couldn't do anything. (laughs) But I remember being like at the pre-party. Happy Halloween. Yeah, it was like the pre-game and they were like, oh, we're going to take these roofies. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this guy just thought it was would be funny. Right. You know, And, you know, again, he's dead now because he was so a he's... bad dude. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Once you tell a serial killer story, they come out of the woodwork. I was at this dinner in Mexico City when I was there for a residency and I was telling this story and normally it's a very shocking story. And then everyone at the table had a better one. 
Yeah. There must be more than we get reported on because like you'd think well, that Well, certainly be... in the 70s, right? I mean, yeah. my brother and I have this it's this crazy. We didn't actually realize this until we were like adults. Yeah. But we there was a brief period of time where my father was getting his PhD at UNC in Chapel Hill and I think I was 5, which would have made my brother 8 and uh we would I mean, talk about the 70s. We would hitchhike into into town and go see there was like a repertory theater and we'd go they like played Star Wars constantly. So for like 50 cents we'd go see Star Wars like all the time. I think I saw it like 38 times in a summer or something. It was crazy. So we would hitchhike and there was two or three times that I got picked up by this guy in a yellow Volkswagen bug. And I would get in the car and he would reach beyond me and lock the door. And I remember feeling at the time being like super terrified, although that didn't stop me from getting in his car again. I know. I was like, <laughs> oh, no, little Judd. But I was also five. I was fucking right. five years old. Like, why was I hitchhiking anywhere? Totally by yourself? But my mom was working. My dad was like. Like, you weren't with your brother. You were like. No, no, I was by myself. Okay, and that's sa Same with my brother. Crazy. And it was like, it was the very first time. I think I remember it so vividly because I think it was the first time that I really felt actual fear and like, oh, something's bad, you know? And then the guy, and he was, I thought he was older, but he was probably in his 20s, you know? But for me as a, as a kid, he seemed much older. And then he would drop me at the destination and say, all right, see you later, kid. And like nothing ever happened. And my brother, years later, I found out would get picked up by the same guy and the same thing happened and he felt super terrified. And I never knew whether it was anything, but Ted Bundy was operating in that area at that time and had the yellow Volkswagen he bug. He did? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if it was him. We, we wouldn't have been wouldn't his type. really see him, like, because you were in the back seat or something? Oh, no, like... it was in the passenger seat. Oh, you but, were. But, like, my memory of it is so, you know, yeah. it's like just flashes, you know? Oh, that's crazy. So who, it might have been, there was also a lot of yellow Volkswagen bugs, so there hard to know. that many, were there? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in the late 70s, probably, Maybe. you know? That's really crazy. Yeah. So who knows whether it was or not, but it seemed weird that- you both had that like major fear instinct. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, well, thinking about this intuitive, and you had said you at one point were drinking to like shut down some of that power. Maybe we can back up. What were your psychic senses like when you were younger? And, you know, are you into ghosts or past lives or anything like that? You know, I'm not really, although I don't discount any of it. I think that it's probably all pretty valid or there's some truth to some of it or all of it i was always like i don't know pretty sad kid i guess i you know you would never know it when you meet me because i'm a pretty jovial guy but i was always pretty sad always by myself always wanting to be alone which i think is why i became an artist because you know it's like a career where you get to be alone unless of course you run a residency program <laughs> yeah we can talk about that yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah, I mean, I guess that there was never, I think I had all of these feelings, but I never had a word or a way to describe it. And as far as ghosts go, I definitely have seen a bunch in this house that I grew up in in Connecticut, uh, where I lived like through my high school years. But we were also, you know, following the Grateful Dead and taking a lot of acid. So even hi in high school. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Started at 13. I, oh, wow. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um. Started seeing the dead at 13 and dropping acid at 13. Oh, okay. Like the dead 
as in people who are no longer alive. No, as in, <laughs> as in the Grateful Dead. Yeah, okay, but I think right. also people the dead that, and the dead and yeah. I mean, I have a pretty vivid memory. I used to live in the attic of this house, so yeah. I should say that the house was the oldest continuously occupied wood framed house in America, which was built in 1642. Whoa, what what part of Connecticut? It's in Guilford, Connecticut, which is on the coast. It's like 20 minutes north of New Haven on the coast. So when our town was settled, they they built this one house, and then there was like thirty or forty people that lived in the house while they were building their houses. So yeah, people wow. lived and died there. Totally. You know, there was like the doctor lived there and the lawyer lived there. Everyone lived there basically. Yeah. So there was a and it was this house was also part of the Underground Railroad, which oh, was wow. kind of amazing. But that, that wasn't cool. for like another hundred and some years. Yeah. that the house was around. So I remember a little boy that used to be. We used to walk around. Oh, in the wow. House. Oh, so how did you see that? See just him? like, you know, I'd open my, I left sleeping, open my eyes, and there he would be just standing there, and then he would yeah. just sort of vanish, you know. Okay. Never like played any pranks or anything or nothing that I was aware of anyway, mm-hmm. but I would just sort of see ap- apparitions. Yeah. Oh, that's, and did your brother or I don't families? know. We, we've never talked about that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And do you have any other Pisces in your family? Uh, just my daughter. So how did you get into psychedelics and stuff? Was it just kind of part of the counterculture at the time or? Yeah. I mean, it was just very much the Grateful Dead and like, oh, you just love them. And so they were. Yeah. Well, and that's what you do. You go see the dead (laughs) and you drop acid. Well, (laughs) and you're not the first dead follower to be on the side woo. One of their earliest guests, Bernadette, who I met in Iceland, she toured with them for years and had one of the vendor shops and like oh, amazing. did aura readings and stuff. So she that was like her life, but doesn't do it as much the way that you do now. Sarah here is going to jump in with some little asides to give you some more info. If you are interested in listening to the episode with our other Deadhead guest, it is episode number four. So go all the way back with Bernadette Esposito, and she's a writer, and the episode's name is When Your Plane Starts on Fire because she was on a plane that started on fire and it changed her life. So definitely worth a listen. Yeah, I mean, for me, so it was from 86 to 91 was basically when I was following them around. You know, I went to school as well, but I would take something this summers we would do the whole summer tour east coast to west coast and would you like camp out yeah oh okay so you did that too we'd like make t-shirts all year long and then we'd sell t-shirts in the parking lot oh you would oh Oh, yeah cool amazing grilled cheese sandwiches sell those in the parking lot like whatever it took to get gas money but i will say i'm like so sad for my kids that will not have an experience like that because it doesn't exist really anymore and it was the ultimate feeling of freedom to be on the road by yourself as a teenager only with other teenagers everybody had each other's back you there was no cell phones so you just had an atlas and just like all right i'll see you at the next spot you know and you'd see people along the road and at gas stations and everybody was sort of doing their you know the same thing and it was just and not to mention that the music and the experience of the actual shows is just 100% joy you know it's not like a normal concert you know it really is one of the most joyful things you'll ever see and so that just like getting that sort of dopamine hit of joy and freedom as well was really I mean, I think it made me who I am today, for sure. That's so amazing. And would you then go to school during the year? Yeah. 
And so, like, were other people in your school doing the same thing, or were you kind of like? Not, I mean, there was plenty of deadheads on on the okay. East Coast. There's a lot of deadheads, and there was plenty of kids that would go to you know the Hartford shows or whatever. Yeah. But my brother and I would do. They would always do a fall tour and a spring tour in the East Coast, uh-huh. and we'd probably do six to eight shows every fall, six to eight shows every spring. So we'd go to like Worcester shows and Providence, Rhode Island, and Hartford, and Amazing. you know. Philly shows, whatever you know. Mm-hmm. I guess as a like as a woman, my first thought would be around safety, but it sounds like you as a community knew everyone, and was it like self policing or? It very much is self policing. I do. It is questionable about the safety of women in that scene. I think. I mean, particularly in like the real like tour rat scene of like. Yeah. Because I see a lot of young girls in that scene, and I worry for them for sure. Yeah. You know, I feel like my friend had a boyfriend that she would tour with, so there's that buffer almost. You know, yeah. but yeah, I know I always worry about groupies or women that are vulnerable in that way. Exactly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just in Boulder, Colorado last weekend for for Dead and Company shows, and my friends that I used to tour with in the 80s, who now live in Baltimore, came and met me there, and their husband and wife, and they were together back then in the 80s, which is amazing. But there was a, at one point we were standing sort of in the back of the stadium and there where the spinners are, which is all like all like the super, super hippies. Uh-huh. And there, it's almost. And like why a, were they called that? Because they spin. They just spin and spin and spin. It's like it's almost a religious sect. Oh, okay. You know, they just turn around in circles. Yeah, for hours. It's Whoa. crazy. They never get dizzy. It's they, almost like an OCD thing, or like where there's like the rocking, or and then I think it's like a meditative thing too. Yeah. Like, well, what I think that is for the the people that need to rock. Like I feel like it is that. Like yeah. David Sedaris talks about just like rocking in his room. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you read that, but. <laughs> Um, that's so interesting. I've never even heard of that. Oh well, there's. I mean, it's there's, it's fascinating. There's all these subsects. There's there's this whole group of deaf people oh, wow. that have been going to shows since this early '70s, and they bring these giant balloons, and they have a certain section for them up front by the speakers. Oh, and then they feel the vibration. They feel the vibrations. What? Yeah, and then there's a group called the Wharf Rats that always wear yellow, and then at set break at every show they have an AA meeting. They're all sober. Oh, So there's all these different sects. So I feel like it's like in Mean Girls or something. You go to the cafeteria and you're coming to a dead show for the first time. You're like, who do I sit with? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, kind of. But just to finish the spinner story is there was a woman walked up to my friend Carolyn and she was like, oh, this is interesting. She was, you know, she had gone to some shows, but she wasn't sort of super aware. Yeah. And she was watching all of these kids spinning and she looks at Carolyn and she goes, this is not a good scene for young girls. Uh, that was her immediate reaction to it. Oh, and Carolyn was like, mm, yeah, you know, you make a good point. The spinning in particular. Well, it's just the, the people that are attracted to that. Like mm. that, because it is a very sort of religious type thing. I see. You know, and like you could tell that there's this sort of hierarchy of the men and the, you know. Yeah, something about when people's bodies get really involved in something and they're, I don't know, that, that always gets a little... What is that religion where they speak in tongues and how right, right. you know like Pentecostal? Pentecostal, yeah. you know, when someone's body gets over or is somehow expected to do something, that always kind of sets off yellow flags for me because for sure. you know when it comes to bodies, there's an immediate hierarchy of power in this dimension or yeah this world anytime anyone tells me that they're religious at all that sets up big red flags for me sure yeah there you go yeah fair enough 
which, you know, is probably not a popular thing, but religion freaks me out. It feels to me that if, if you have a really solid sense of self, then you maybe don't need religion, you know? Yeah. And I, I know that that's like a sweeping statement, but. It feels like recently I've seen a couple pushes to create alternative religions. Like Rain Wilson, he just wrote this book called like Super something. And I'll have to look that up. So real quick, the book is actually called Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And he basically wants to create a new religion that's very spiritual instead of it being based on a specific god or like Magic guy in the sky. You know. Superheroes in the sky. Exactly, which I think is admirable, but why does it need to be a new religion? You know, could it not just be a book that you're selling and everyone takes away from it what they want? Or couldn't it just be a personal belief that you don't have to share with anybody? A belief system. (laughs) I know. And and I'm like, why does it need to be a religion? That feels like the wrong direction. Jumping in again, I did a little research and I don't really see anywhere in more recent press where he is saying that he wants to start a new religion. So I just want to put that out there. Although in the interview that I heard on his podcast in April 2023, Metaphysical Milkshake, which, you know, by the way, sounds totally delicious. He did say something about kind of creating this new religion that is based more on spirituality and not the existing dogmas. So, you know, maybe take that with a grain of salt. I think one of the things they also do in the episode is define terms because everyone uses all these woo-woo terms in different ways. So I think, you know, the crux of what Soul Boom is about is can we make our lives and our society better through spirituality? Are there answers to be found in religion? I think it's an interesting idea. And, you know, if he wants to come on the show, I'm definitely not going to stop him. Okay, back to the episode. I get a, not all the time, but oftentimes a religious experience from making art or as close to a spiritual, I should say, experience from making art. And I don't need anything else. You know, yeah. like that. And I get that not everybody has that. And yeah. people need to, purpose and reason for why the world is the way it is. And, mm. you know, I always feel like I, we're just here to do the thing that we're supposed to do and yeah. whatever that is. And some people find it. You know, I feel like we're really lucky that we found it. Mm-hmm. And some people never find it. And so in, in place of not finding it, they find religion, you know. Yeah. And I think. Religion as a social structure can provide some really important things, and I think maybe that's where Rain Wilson was going with that. It provides community and rituals that I think we let go of as we try to move away from the church, you know, but rituals serve a really important function in a lot of people's lives and have for, you know, like thousands of years. So I get that those things are important but again yeah like who decides is the part that i don't like about religion right who creates the rituals yeah and who tells you if they're right or wrong you know like the fact that someone's going to tell you is problematic well i think that i think i was telling you maybe a couple weeks ago about my recent trip to the vatican which was amazing so amazing so amazing but you know i'm weighing that with Literally, that every other week there's a new news report about, you know, 600 children abused in the Chicago Archdiocese, 500 kids abused in the Providence Archdiocese, Boston. It's just one after another, after another, after another. And then you go to the Vatican and you look 
at the most ostentatious display of wealth. Absolutely. And you think to yourself, oh, all they'd have to do is sell that one Botticelli over there and they could literally pay reparations to all of these people that they've harmed for, you know, for the last hundred years. And they just don't. They won't. They would rather claim bankruptcy, which is insane, and pay no one. It just happened in Oakland. The Art, Oakland Archdiocese just claimed bankruptcy so that they would not have to pay all of the children that they abused. And I just feel like, how can anyone in good conscience continue to be a Catholic? Like, yeah. you know, like it's just nuts. And I realize this is not a popular thing to say, and people will probably be pissed off, that Catholics will be pissed off that I said this, but I, it, to me, it does not jive with what the religion is supposed to be about. Right. You know? Yeah. I don't know enough to get like have an intelligent conversation around that, but I think you bring up the the economics is like a really interesting part of it, which I think is the root of a lot of the problems, right? That's why they, you know, like destroyed indigenous cultures and really is the the reason behind a lot of what they say that they're doing, you know? Well, I just learned recently that the reason that priests are not allowed to marry, it wasn't always that way. Oh, my God. So the the woman and her family doesn't have access to the money of the church? Yeah. Well, it was a land thing. That's yeah, crazy. It's so crazy. They were like, oh, wait a minute. If the priest dies and he gives all his land to his wife and kids, then we lose the land. But but if we just make sure he never marries, we're fine. Oh, <laughs> my God. crazy. And meanwhile, cue thousands of years of shame, you know, right. and internalizing or like repressing their sexual or romantic urges. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. It's so crazy. Have you ever studied the Bible as a political document or done any research around that? I took a class where we were doing the classics, you know, through the lens of literature and history. And we did that for the Bible and they unpacked it as a document of the time, which was super fascinating because stuff like that would come up, you know, where it's like, oh, they did this because of the Romans at the time and they were trying to like shift power Right, because it wasn't even until like the 15 or 1600s that the idea of the Immaculate Conception was introduced. Oh, interesting. Which is kind of crazy, too. That is super crazy. Know? And it was a similar, I forget what the exact reason was, but it was a similar type thing. It was like, oh, we have to make an excuse for this. So Well, and also like, oh, paganism, we've kind of killed it, but we like that metaphor. So like, why don't we right. take that, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, really when you strip it all away and you look at like modern, or not even modern, but comic books in the last 50 years, you know, Jesus Christ is Superman. It's like this pure miracle-making deity that saves everybody. That's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. Although I I do get the Christ figure as a archetype. Sure. Oh, that's interesting. Christ as Superman, you should write that essay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure someone has. Actually, totally. You know? But so then what is like kryptonite to Jesus? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good, What's Jesus's kryptonite? Mary Magdalene, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Right. That that would be it. Yeah. That <laughs> awesome. Would be it. I did want to talk before we switch gears and talk to residency about using psychedelics for like spiritual enhancement. And have you had crazy experiences or like you said, you really are interested in DMT as this alternative to LSD or... I don't know. Do you want Yeah, to- I mean I like them I like all of the substances differently and they all have their place. I feel like when I was I think I was telling you this, when I was a kid, I would take them to get high, like most kids do. Yeah. 
you know, and exploratory or yeah. And I think also when you're a kid and you have sort of no inhibitions, like I would take very heavy, huge doses of this stuff. And I was always able to deal with it. Like, I think in the back of my mind, I was always like, well, this is not going to last forever. And like, as intense as this is, I'm going to get through it. And so I never had a super freak out trip. You didn't? Okay. No. I mean, I've had bad trips. What's like the worst trip that you've had that you feel comfortable talking about? It's hard to remember. Just like... Like spiders. You know, getting into a really dark place and only able to think of negative thoughts and stuff is really... And that all comes back to set and setting, right? There are times now where I'll be like, all right, you know, I'm going to take acid this weekend or whatever. And then the weekend comes and I'm like, you know, I'm just not there. I'm not there emotionally. And I feel like if I did that, it might be a mistake. Reversing for a minute. So as a kid, use it to get high. And then I really stopped for like almost 20 years or so. And then there was one day that I said to my wife, like I was just thinking about it a lot. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to start taking psychedelics again. And I think that I want to do it this time to learn about myself. And to her amazing credit, she was like, that's awesome. I'd love to do it with you. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so, you know, she doesn't go quite as deep as I go, Mm. but she definitely will go along for the ride, which is great because it's really nice to experience it with someone. So I feel like it's really influenced a lot of my sculpture. There was a whole series very much influenced by psilocybin that was this all polygons and bright colors. And that lasted for a bunch of years. And I don't ever use these substances in the studio. Mm -hmm. It's always I'll go deep on something and then I'll take whatever I felt and saw from that, that experience into the studio and try and sort of recreate it. Mm. And so the polygons and patterns that you now make with your sculpture, were those things that came up in a trip? Or Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are things that are either in like the periphery of my vision mm. or like with DMT, as you mentioned. DMT is interesting because it only lasts for like 8 to 15 minutes. And remind me what it comes from again. It's, well, it's, come, it's called dimethyltryptamate and it's in... To the best of my knowledge, it's in many, many living things, but it's the root of ayahuasca. Oh, that's right. But they synthesize it through the ayahuasca root, I believe. No, don't quote me on that. But uh, you smoke it, and when you this literally the second you exhale, you are in another universe. Like it's crazy, and everyone has a shared experience. Like I could sit here with you, we could both smoke DMT, and we could discuss the patterns that we're both seeing because it's that shared and it's not it's not always exact but it's pretty close which is kind of amazing and a lot of people who have gone very deep on dmt which i haven't done this but they see and are contacted by interdimensional beings that that tell them things that explain things about their life and it's pretty common they're called digital elves people call them I just wanted to provide a little context about these digital elves since we don't go into them too much. The shared experience that Judd is talking about is the encounter of these creatures, as he says, digital elves is one name for them. A quick Google search turned up a few other names. They were called silvery beings, self-transforming elf machines, friendly fractal entities, clockwork elves, and the best one, in my opinion, 
self-dribbling Fabergé eggs on the rebound. <laughs> so whatever that means to you, I don't know if that is going to motivate you to take DMT now. But those last three were written by Dr. Steve Thayer, who is a clinical psychologist and host of the podcast Psychedelic Therapies Frontier, who is a studier of DMT. And he wrote about it, his experiences and his research, quote, the hallucinations vary widely, but usually involve geometric patterns, vivid colors, and contact with entities. People describe these entities as distinct autonomous beings that typically present with some kind of message, unquote. And so from my research, and I think this is common with most ritualistic psychedelics, but people usually get some message about life after death or that we're all connected and we're all one, that there's nothing to be afraid of or that time doesn't exist or their loved ones are with them. So it's like a really positive experience. I haven't read too much that there's any negative experiences. I'm personally really curious. Ayahuasca has been used since 900 BC, according to archeological remains found in Peru. And so there is real history there, but I'm also way too scared. So if you have used it, and want to go more into detail about digital elves, please let me know. Okay, back to the episode. But what I see on DMT, and I don't do it that often, but what I see are really strong Incan and Mayan type patterns. Oh, that's so interesting. So that's the latest work that I've been doing for the last couple of years has been sort of based on that, like my version of that sort of very, um, and also I'm really interested in brutalist architecture. And mm -hmm. so it has that same feel to it, yeah. you know? Is that common that the Incan and Mayan stuff comes through for other people yeah. too? Yeah. So it was specifically with this drug. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, each one has its own thing, you know, it's really, which I, I just find to be fascinating. And now because I have kids, I, it's not something I can do all the time, you know? It's, sure. I like that the DMT is like the busy parent <laughs> psychedelic. Yeah, the businessman psychedelic. Right. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I've got 20 minutes. Let me right. do this for 10 and yeah. journal for 10. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really, it's kind of fascinating that way. But I also really enjoy just like eating one little mushroom cap and going on a hike, you know? Yeah. Or actually, that's not true. I don't like hiking. But. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you're like, minus the hike. <laughs> yeah, minus the hike. But I love to, or even just like go to a party. And because mm. I don't smoke pot, I don't, and yeah. I, I don't like smoking pot. And are you still drinking or no? I you I've don't been, drink at all. Nope, not a drop. I've been sober for over two years. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, what was that process like? In the beginning, it was very difficult, and went to meetings not for too too long, only for maybe a couple of months. Okay. But it was crazy. I mean, I, I feel like I've been drinking since I was sixteen, like pretty heavily, and then you know, not dealing with so many things in my life and including like who I am as a person. And then all of a sudden, when you take that all away, and then you're really forced to look at who you are and who you are as a father and who you are as a husband. Yeah. And it's pretty intense. It's uh, I don't wish it on anyone. <laughs> right. I mean, do you feel like the pandemic heightened that process made it feel more urgent or? Definitely. Well, yeah. I think that Depend in the beginning of the pandemic, drinking was so much fun for all of us that drank. You know, like you'd sit in your stoop and you'd have your friends come over and you know you'd have cocktails and 
it was kind of fun. And then it just, it just ramped up for me and got to a dark place. Mm -hmm. And then it was, I had to quit. And when I did, it was sort of like, okay, well, certainly for the first bunch of months was like, well, what else? I don't have anything. There's no other vice that I have, you know, I can't get away from myself. Totally. I ate a lot of sugar because I quit February 2021, kind of similar. I was by myself, though, because I just come back from traveling and I didn't have a pod. And so I was just alone and I really leaned on work and going to the studio. And then I would drink like tons of coffee and then right at five start drinking wine. And it wasn't ever that crazy, but I felt like at some point, I'm like, this is not for fun. This is not to socialize. This is just me not wanting to be in my head or in yeah. my existence. And so I stopped. But then I was like, oh, shit, kind of similar feeling of like, well, what do I do now? And then I'm like, well, sugar. Yeah. Sugar is a thing. It's pretty common, right? Because there's so much sugar, particularly in wine. Same thing. I I really thought one of like the, the benefits I thought from drinking, I was like, all right, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to lose all this weight. Totally. I actually gained so much weight. because Oh, I, wow. Well, because you were just like, yeah, give me all the cookies. I, totally. That's what I did too. Yeah. And I'm also over 50. So that moment when you would quit drinking and lose 20 pounds, like all of a sudden I'm old now and that just doesn't happen, <laughs> you know? So it was like doubly depressing. But yay, sober. <laughs> yes. You know what? I, I can't even imagine. There's times when I'm like, oh, it'd be so nice to have a drink right now. But the guilt associated with it at this point would be too much to bear. And I like who I am as a father and as a husband and as a person so much better than who I was. And in fact, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know how I managed for all those years. That's so cool. I personally love waking up with zero hangover. Like, that's the best part of it. Oh, it's the best. It's just like, I don't even need to drink water. I feel great. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> but kind I should of drink water. <laughs> but water is so boring. Water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I, the only, I only drink coffee and water. That's it. I don't have, yeah. there's no like, or anything. Like, yeah. Two beverages. That's it. Very cool. Well, and so how did you get involved with space program then? Uh, it's kind of a long story, but really what happened was my good friend, Jacob Pritzker, him and I started working together on putting some art in the Grand Hyatt in here in Union Square in San Francisco. It was his project, but he wanted some sculpture to go in there. So I did a couple of pieces for the lobby that are still there. And then we just like hit it off. We just were, you know, kindred souls and good friends and so we would just go to lunch, you know, a couple times a week sometimes and just like bullshit and talk and hang out. And he kept inviting me over to this warehouse where he lived. He was like, you got to come to this warehouse. And, and I, is that where we are right now? Yeah, that's yeah. where we are right now. Okay. And I think for maybe almost a year, I just never came over here. And then finally he was like, dude, you got to come and like, come see this and like help me do something with it. You're like, I don't want to go to a warehouse on 3rd Street. Like, thank you, You serial killer. Yeah, exactly. I already saw one of you. I don't need this. No. Um, so I came over here, and it's crazy. It's this huge, you know, 5,000-square-foot warehouse. And at the time, he lived here. There's a residence here as well. And he was like, you know, would you help me do something with this? I've always wanted to do an artisan residency program. And I thought, well, that's amazing. That would be so much fun to do. And neither one of us had have any idea how to make a residency program. Yeah. So we start, we, it was a really slow process. We just 
again, would have lunches and we would talk about what it would look like. And I would tell him about the residencies that I did and what was good about them and what was bad about them. And sort of as an artist, what I would love to see mm. in a residency, which is lots of tools and lots of assistance and mm. funding and all of those things. And so yeah. we started to buy tools. It was really slow. We started to buy tools. I started to work out of the warehouse and making really big work. And we had invited a bunch of other artists to come and make some work too. And what year was this? This was like four or five years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Then we decided to get serious about it and actually start to build it out. And at that time, Jacob is a musician and he makes electronic music and he had a beta studio in the downstairs of his apartment here on site. And he thought, you know what, maybe this is the time to actually make a proper recording studio. And so he hired this guy, John Storick, who is legendary in the recording studio industry to come in and he designed it. And then we went through the permit process and all of that, which took a very long time. And then it took like two years to actually build this recording studio. It is so nice, everyone. I will post my photos, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so during that, I was working out of the studio and then also, you know, we're still figuring out the, the program. So once it finally got finished, it was right around COVID time. We had a couple of like test residents. We had our friend Jisho come in and our friends Ferris and Kelly came in and we were basically like, you guys do your thing. We're here to help you. And then we just want feedback of, you know, what we're doing wrong. And they were great. They helped us out tremendously. And But it's really just like single resident that comes through. We learn something. We change something. We add something. We take something away. And it's really unique because it's in residency run by artists. And we're always on site. It's me and Ben Venom, and we're here. And so when a resident needs something, we're here. And we're here to either order it for them or get the right appropriate wizard that knows how to do it. Or if I know how to do it, I'll help them. And then it really becomes this like art camp for adults. And it's really fun. I mean, you've been here for a while and you've seen it's like a living organism. There's people in and out and, you know. I love it because I've been at residencies where it's a little bit more stagnant. There's the one person and then you don't get a lot of interaction with outsiders or, you know, it's like the four people and then you don't get a lot of natural like in and out. And the thing I love about here is, yeah, there's like people popping in for the recording studio and then there's, you know, an artist who just finished a book project and it feels very organic because I think the community piece is the big piece, right, it's of a key. residency, you know, like, yes, yeah. you can make amazing work and that's important, but I think it's also like the networking and the conversations. and Exactly. Well, I think one of the things that we really tried to do is like, it's fine to go to the south of France and make your work it's beautiful you know it's cool but what we really try to encourage is like come here and make work that you would have never made anywhere else you know come and try to expand what what it is what your practice is or learn a new practice and you know and maybe you'll maybe you'll fail at it but at least you'll try and we're here to help you you know so, I mean, it's really, and you're right, community is the key, and it's so much fun. It's ridiculous. Sometimes it's a lot of psychic energy for me. I was going to ask how that plays out for you as a loner. Yeah. I mean, it's great because we're not, it's not an open invitation 
It's not like a storefront where people can just wander in off right. the street. Yeah. Well, there's that, and there's also you can't apply for it. There's, yeah. It's really we handpick the people that we want to work with. Totally. And so in that regard, I end up working with people that I really like and cool. that I really respect. And that makes it really fun, you mm. know? But sometimes it does require a lot of creative energy. And at the end of two or three residencies in a row, I'm tired, you know? Yeah. And it, there's not a lot left for my own practice. So it's it's a balancing act because I really do love it, but I also am like, oh, God, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, what do you feel like you would advise? Because I feel like I've had friends like want to start a residency and having done a bunch of the ones that are like in the middle of nowhere in Europe, they are different than I think you think they're going to be as the head of it. So what would be your advice to someone thinking about giving back in the way that you guys have either starting a residency or creating a space for artists to work, what would you say are some things that you didn't expect to learn? Well, I think number one, and this could just be coming from the fact that I'm a sculptor, tools. Having tools on site, even if they're just basic, like having a basic wood shop that people can build, stick some wood together, you know? Having a couple of really basic welders that people can stick some metal together, you know? And then just, ha you know, having brushes and having rollers and having all of the little things, you know, buckets for paint, all of the things that you don't bring with you, you know, like you can bring your own specific paints that you like to use, but all of the other stuff, having that on site. And then I think having someone, particularly when it's so somewhere that you're visiting from far away, having someone that's really there to help you and to answer questions, you know, because I think sometimes just being left alone somewhere, you're like, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're, yeah, it kind of is destabilizing to pick up and move to a different space and, and then to have no one there to kind of guide you through it or to like show that your, your presence is contributing to something bigger, you know, you're like, why am I even here? <laughs> right. Well, I think the other thing that, and a lot of residencies do this, but we certainly do this, is we don't require anything of anyone. Mm. We, you know, you don't have to finish a project while you're here. You mm. can just come here and explore, you know, and that's cool. So I think that giving people the freedom of just, you're just here to explore and to create and whatever comes of that is great. And you shouldn't expect to leave here with a finished body of work, although many people do. Yeah, I love that. And it sounds like you've created, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but you've created a video series inspired by being in your role at the residency and you're shopping it out as like a pilot series. Yeah, and actually it started sort of before we even did the residency. Uh, Jacob, my partner, was generous enough to give me the seed funding to create the a sizzle reel for this. And so the idea was basically a television show called Process about the process of making art from the perspective of real blue collar artists that we are basically we're not jeff coons we're not damien hurst right like you're actually making the work yeah and so but also looking at it through a lens of like you're following this artist through their day-to-day -day life and maybe they're at party city shopping for their five-year-old birthday party and that's a real part of life and so getting a lens into an artist's life that's not auction house 400 million you know, high polished balloon mm. animals, you know, which is really, I think, what we only see. And that's what the world 
thinks of what an artist is. Yeah, or I'm thinking two of these maybe in between that is the painter who has already struggled through the shitty studio and has like a whole beautiful studio with great lighting and the most pimped out palette table and the ladder and the thing that they can hang over and do the painting upside down on, you know. Yeah, because I feel like Art 21 does a lot of those people too who are like, I've got all the time in the world to devote to this. And assistants and all of that. Yeah, you know, so just all you see is this like really pristine contemplative moment. But it's like there's so much chaos around that that I think it would be valuable to show because that's the hard part is like how do you get into that state when all that is happening, you know? Right, right. Well, and like you said, the struggle before you get to that point. That too, yeah. And so we had – we had gotten to a place where we made this amazing sizzle reel and my good friend Eric Foss in New York City, who's an amazing artist, he's really good friends with Norman Reedus, he's an actor, was in The Walking Dead. He's Daryl in The Walking Dead and a great guy. Eric showed the sizzle reel to Norman. Norman said, oh man, this is amazing. I would love to be a part of this. So he signed on to be executive producer of it. And then at that point, we were shopping production companies and we ended up with Left Right, who were great. They've done some really, really cool work. Are they cool Bay Area? Or? They're New York, too. Oh, cool. They've done some great stuff, including they did this amazing documentary called Watch Me Jumpstart about Guided by Voices, who are, other than the Grateful Dead, my other favorite band. Oh, wow. No way. Yeah. And that was just like, it happened. Kismet, oh, right? Wow. It just yeah. like weird happenstance. Banks Tarver is the guy that did that, and he's one of the founders of Left Right. Oh, okay. So we started shopping this project around, and then it was literally COVID hit, and we were still shopping it around in the beginning of COVID and having Zoom calls and stuff. And in the beginning of it, I think that a lot of these places like Netflix, et cetera, they weren't sure what this was going to look like, and so mm. they weren't. I think everyone was like holding their cards pretty close to their chest. It ended up that they needed tons of content, but they had already sort of passed on us, you know, by that point. So then it just kind of died, and we had put so much effort into it. So then, well, it didn't die. Well, and then can you tell me what you tell the audience, what you told me about the types of shows that don't do well? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, they told us that the two types of shows that do terribly are shows about art and shows about firefighters. Which I thought was really weird because you would think that the firefighter show would do really well. Yeah, like what does that even mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I get it. The art show is pretty niche, you know? Yeah, it is. But I think maybe it's because of the way that people are portraying artists. I think if they did show the how we made it kind of process of like, oh, all the things that go into bronze sculpture, you know, or painting – Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. I mean, because look at Bob Ross. Like, that is literally how I learned art when right. I was younger. So, Well, and I think maybe even a, a more sort of apples to apples of what we were thinking of yeah. doing would be Chef's Table, right? You know, so where it's really beautiful. It's beautifully shot. Totally. It's really interesting. You know, people love Chef's Table. Although, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how huge the audience was, but I think it was pretty big. I don't know that one. Is that a cooking show? Yeah, but it's like a super high. It's like food porn. Beautiful. Check it. It's on Netflix. You check it out. Okay, cool. I do love food shows. Yeah. So then during COVID, during the beginning of COVID, we did all of these shots where we would send cameras to artists. They would film their studio practice, That's cool. and then we would do Zoom calls and we'd interview them, and then I would write the narration and then I'd narrate over the top of it. 
And we did four of those spots. Mm. And I thought that those were really, really good. I mean, given the limited capabilities. Yeah. And we were just hitting brick walls left and right. And then Norman was like, hey, you know, what if we like switch this up and like, why don't you interview Bjork? And why don't you interview? Yeah, I want to and... interview Bjork. Oh, yeah. Well, so Norman's friends with her. He was you like, get a hold of her. Yeah, let her know. But <laughs> okay. the side woo. <laughs> I went on a Bjork deep dive actually this She's week. She's awesome. Because I pulled a card in my movie tarot deck about her. And then it was her 30th anniversary that day oh, of no the debut album. And I was like, okay, that feels like I need to look into her a bit more. So Interesting. It's weird that she's coming up. Right I know now. it is. And actually, the essay going out on my Substack today is Whoa, all about her. Weird. I know. So I'm like, because you hadn't mentioned her when we were talking before. So I'm like, that feels related. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird. Yeah. Well, so, but that, you know, I had to tell Norman, you know, that's not what this is. Right. That's not your vibe. You know, like, I don't want to interview celebrities. That's yeah. not, you know, even as cool as I think she is, and she's amazing, but she is sort of, to what you were saying, like seeing the Art 21 you exactly, know, yeah. artist in the Finner House. Like, you know, I'd love to hang out with Matthew Barney too, but he's not perfect for the show, <laughs> you know? Okay. On that note, Matthew Barney came and did a lecture at SFAI back in the day in like 2004 or something, and he just got ripped to shreds. Really? It was like a grad lecture series, and he was showing some work he had made in Brazil at like carnival time, and it was kind of unresolved, and maybe he hadn't thought through everything yet, and people were just like tearing him a new one. They were like, this is terrible. I don't like that, and they were like criticizing him, <laughs> and I was like, this is so oh classic SFAI, like just brutal grad school snarkiness. I mean, man, the Cray Master cycle is pretty incredible. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I would love to own them. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can buy them. I don't know. There's a, one or two on YouTube, but there's not the full, whatever, six or seven of them that there are. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, you could probably figure that out, listeners. How do you get funding to do something like that? Yeah. I don't know. You know, because it had to be hundreds of millions. You think so? For oh, the for seven. Sure. Yeah. Well, he had all those like props that he could then sell through his galleries and that's stuff. That's true. So, yeah, that's true. And he was probably making a good amount of money by already by that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's a good question. I mean, that and that goes to your point about your project. These things that are even weirder and less universally appealing get made. So it's almost like the universe decides, you know, like a network executive can tell you, oh, this isn't going to do well, but like... What do they even know? You know, they've right. been wrong so many times. So many times. <laughs> well, and I should say that after four years of starting this project, there's finally renewed interest in Awesome. It. Okay. And so we're revamping the sizzle reel and adding some stuff, taking some stuff away. And then we're going to go through another round of shopping it around. Cool. And we'll see. I mean, I, I there's no money in television at all. And not that I would be doing this for money, but yeah. I do have a family and I live in San Francisco. It's a real thing. Yeah, it's it, real. We exist in capitalism, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, I feel like my family would make the sacrifice for me to do this because I, really, I only really want to do it for like a season. <laughs> It'd be cool just to do it, just to experience what it's like to make a television show, yeah. you know? Oh, for sure. It'd be kind of fun. Totally. And then if, you know, if it fails miserably, I can at least say, oh, I made a television show. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know? know, and again, like we've talked about this and- like, there's so much good content, too, on YouTube, which I know isn't maybe your end goal, but, like, I'm obsessed with Chicken Shop Date. Okay. And which is this <laughs> British woman who interviews 
soccer stars and musicians and is increasingly getting more famous people now. But she's been doing it herself, funding it completely, writing everything, performing in it for like eight years or nine years. And now she has like two million followers. But Amazing. I'm like, she's totally self-funded. And I think probably in the early days, it was like, you know, a camera and her and two people, you know? Right, right. So I don't know. You can do a lot. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. just never know. Like, maybe you get more support by the second season or... Which would be great. I mean, my partner on this is Andrew Walton and Walton Films. He's amazing. And oh, cool. he's so, so good. And I think that the only way we would want to do it is at a level that is like super beautiful, you know, like beautifully shot and beautifully totally. edited. Like really high end. Yeah, high, exactly. High production value. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, the artists that we would like to work with, while they maybe are not Damien Hurst, we still think that they're worthy of being elevated and having their work elevated. No. Yeah. Oh, totally. I know. I think there's something important too. I don't know if you do all Bay Area, but there's something important about elevating your own community. Yes. Because I, I don't know if you saw like Griff Williams movie, um, Tell Him We Were Here. Yeah. Great. It was great, but I think a lot of people felt left out. Yes, that's true. But it's like, there, it's because he only made the one movie, you know, it's like, yeah, that's his movie. So he gets to say whatever he wants. And unfortunately, there just aren't other people doing that. And so it's cool to hear that you're, I don't know if you would do only Bay Area. But. I mean, I think that would certainly be a focus. But I mean, it's it's funny you say that because. You could do seasons of I different could, cities. I could. Well, and also we could do. Committing you into like a five season arc <laughs> now. <laughs> but I would think about like we could do music as well. We could mm -hmm. do dance. We could like, there's so many. And then I had another mm -hmm. idea for a different show called Public where it's just about public art and how public art gets made. Oh, wow. Which I think, you know, that's more of like giant cranes and huge machinery oh, totally. and stuff like that, which would, I think would be really interesting too. I have some really strong opinions about public art. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well. Fan? I, <laughs> I feel like public art should be, particularly in in major metropolitan areas, should primarily be like 99% be made by the artists that live in those communities mm -hmm. and that there's no reason that we should have a Klaus Oldenburg bow and arrow mm. down in the waterfront. I see. Or there's no reason that we should have a Roxy Payne sculpture that just went up in front of the new BART station for $2 million mm -hmm. that was fabricated in New York and brought here right. when there are plenty be fabricating it here yes mm. it should be the artist should be paid here all the fabrication should be made here now <clears throat> when you get into smaller municipalities there maybe is not as many artists that are capable of doing mm -hmm. stuff but certainly san francisco in the bay area there is more than enough artists to make totally. all of the public art and not only are you giving back to the community in that way and keeping the art community alive but you're also giving your city a sense of place of this is the work that mm -hmm. is made here. This is the work that we believe in, you know? And so I just- Absolutely. It pisses me off that so much of the art goes to, you know, artists from Japan. Like who, that doesn't say anything about San Francisco. Right, you know? and there are, like you said, so many really great artists. And I think one of the things that, that people struggle with here is that there's such a scarcity of opportunity. Right. 
And that's why a lot of people leave because there's only so many opportunities and especially when you farm them out to other people. <laughs> right. Well, and then when you make, you make yourself, and I'm talking about the, the Arts Commission now, when you make yourself feel good. Okay. By... Yeah, the, the, this statement does not re reflect the entire podcast, but <laughs> no, I'm just But kidding. when you make yourself feel good by giving the local artists a kiosk on a bus stop and be like, oh, we're supporting local artists. Well, no, you're not. You just gave $2 million to Roxy Payne. Totally. You know, that is ridiculous. That's Needless to say, I've never gotten a public art commission. Well, hello, people. <laughs> Give that $2 million to Judd so he can make his movie slash TV show. <laughs> well, cool. Well, um, do you have anything coming up that you want to share or any ghost stories? I don't have much coming up. I'm just in a, I'm more in a just production. making a production area Mode. right now. Yep. Cool. Well, this was really wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time. And thank you for having me here at the space program. Oh, it's been our pleasure. It's been and really fun. Yeah. Thank you. Well, have a good one. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, follow, subscribe, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the side room.